I'm a little nervous. This is the first um, pair <laughs> I've interviewed. Wow. Well, it's gonna be yeah. rough. Good luck with this. It's like, where do I look? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Periodic. I'll go too much Janet. Or yeah. Go, too oh, much okay. coal, and then you'll know. That's actually very helpful. <laughs> well, I shoot eye daggers, but I don't say it out loud. So. Um. Or should we just do it? I don't. Okay. Fuck it. You know what? You just dive in. I'm not going mad. 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 Welcome to Gatekeeper, a podcast about booking from the bookers and gatekeepers who decide who's in, who's out. Also, there's other stuff. And now your host of Gatekeeper, artistic director of the Hollywood Improv, Jamie Clam. Hey everyone, welcome to Gatekeeper. This is episode six. I got an idea. Leave a review on iTunes. You can also give a star review up to five stars. I would recommend five stars because you love it so much. It will help this podcast catapult to the top of the ratings. And once we get to the top of the ratings, guess what? Pinata party. (laughs) Didn't know where I was going with that, but I have a new rule. When all else fails, just keep talking and you will land on something of import. In this case, that thing of import was a piñata. Only this piñata did not yield a delicious uh, bevy of candies for those of you that are listening. It's only made things more awkward. I started writing and performing in San Francisco in 2002. That same year, SF Sketchfest, now one of the biggest and best comedy festivals in the world, launched as well. I remember seeing the ad for it in the SF Weekly and being new to comedy myself, thinking, hey, I like sketch comedy. I should probably go to this. And then I went to it. Unlike the mega event it is now, hosting the biggest names in the biz, including panels and reunion shows, to the tune of The Kids in the Hall, Mr. Show, Arrested Development, The Upright Citizens Brigade, The State, Mystery Science Theater 3000, Strangers with Candy, The Simpsons, and The Daily Show, and so many more, that first year of the festival was simply four sketch groups renting out a theater to put on some shows because that's what they enjoyed doing. I really liked it and left totally inspired. Until that point, sketch comedy was just something I grew up watching on SNL, but it wasn't something I'd really considered or even really knew I could go to see live. Seeing it on its feet in a small theater that year made it more tangible to me, something that even I could pursue. It's been really cool watching the festival grow each year, in some ways mirroring my own comedy career, which started at the same time. Starting with sketch, then slowly incorporating improv, then stand-up, then more and more variety. I don't know that SF Sketchfest ever had a post-breakup phase living on its grandma's couch in Encino well into its 30s, questioning every decision it ever made. But in today's episode of Gatekeeper, I spoke with festival co-creators Cole Stratton and Janet Varney, who shared with me stories about the fest's modest beginnings, the ups and downs it's inevitably encountered, and the fascinating evolution of arguably the best comedy festival in the universe. Live show and festival producers will get a lot out of this conversation. And I also tried to get that sweet, sweet intel on how talent goes about getting booked on an annual festival like this, one that's become a terrific career benchmark and resume builder for comics. I know as the booker of the improv, when I see SF Sketchfest on a cold submission, I'm far more likely to consider that person for a set. So I have a great idea. Listen to and enjoy this episode of Gatekeeper. Hi, I'm Jamie Flam, and welcome to Gatekeeper. I already did a whole little intro thing that I'll be recording later. It's cool sound effects and, and whatnot. Oh, okay. 
I am excited to be joined. Oh, and there's uh, like when I say gatekeeper, there's going to be a cool effect. Clang! That's a wrap. That's why I got you here. Your voiceover skills to help create the gatekeeper gatescape. See, mine would have been more like, hey, it's me, the gatekeeper. That's pretty good, too. I go, you want in the gate? You want in the gate? I'll let you in the gate. A little peek behind the scenes with the co-creators of SF Sketchfest, folks. No. That's right. This is the brilliance that brings us one of our wonderful annual comedy festivals, arguably the best festival ever in the entire world. Would you guys argue that? Sure. I don't need to argue. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Janet Varney and Cole Stratton. Welcome to Gatekeeper. How are you guys doing today? I'm a gatekeeper. You wanted the gate? That's a lot of locks. It turns out it all they were missing was each other. Those two. <gasps> it was like ding, that. Ding, 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 ding. It's like the end of Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas. If they had just performed together, they would have beaten the River Bottom Nightmare Band. Yeah. And they would have won all that money. And they wouldn't have had to work at Doc Toad's Riverboat. Casino thing. Yeah, it's so sad how you can see them trying to convince themselves it's better than not working at all. Yeah. Not, not familiar with any of these references. Oh, <laughs> um, But as oh, the host of the show, ready? I'm going to keep this train a moving. You know what I'll and, tell you? Yes. We did do a screening of Emma Daughter's Jug Band Christmas as a Christmas as a Sketchfest event. Mm. This segue. So you tied it in. Okay, great. Well, I'm I'm joined by uh, two people I've known for almost 14 years. Um, they do an annual festival. That's one of the best. And, uh, I'm excited to have you guys here because I wanted to talk on this podcast about festivals and what it takes to make them and the people behind them. And how does one get booked for a festival? You guys are gatekeepers. Oh no. (laughs) So let's go back to 2001. You guys are performing sketch. Wait, are we really going back? (laughs) (laughs) Oh God, the room is spinning. (laughs) Um, we have the a towers, no. tornado. <laughs> other podcasts have other sound effects. We're in a tornado. Yep. Um, so what are you guys doing and what's what leads up to the first festival? San Francisco, 2001. Four college students <laughs> with a dream. Uh, we were all in a sketch comedy group together called Totally False People. Um, we all met at San Francisco State University, the school that's constantly under construction. And uh, we started doing comedy, sketch comedy. There wasn't a lot of venues in San Francisco to do sketch comedy. There's one called the Mott Cafe, which is this little hole in the wall that had a beam right in the middle of the room. Yeah, bless its heart. Um, and then later Spanganga, which came out of that. Oh, but yeah. There wasn't a lot of places to perform. Uh, comedy clubs where we like, we would do rooster teeth feathers or stuff and get voicemail complaints because no one understood what we were doing. Um Play acting? Is that what somebody said on the Yeah, I think it was play acting. I don't know what it was. Play acting. So we banded together with five other local troops, rented a theater for a month because you couldn't just rent a theater for like a night. You had to commit to a run. So we rented the Shelton Theater down in Union Square, which is about 75 seats, I think, and uh, did shows Thursday through Sunday um, for four weekends, basically, with each like two groups each doing 45 minutes each. And then the last week doing like kind of a cabaret style, all the groups doing 15 minute sets or so and um, called it a festival. <laughs> so we had an angle and uh, the other groups were White Noise Radio Theater, Casper um, Hauser, which are amazing. Uh, Please Leave the Bronx, the Meehan Brothers and Robot. Fresh, Fresh Robots. Fresh Robots. Featuring people that have gone on to many amazing yeah, things. Yeah, no kidding. Al Madrigal, W. Kamal Bell. Um, and called it a festival and, um, 
Chronicle ran a story on it because that's when print did things for you. Yeah. <laughs> and we sold everything out, but I think one show on a Wednesday or Thursday or something. Yeah. That's it. What was the, what was the landscape at that time? Because 2001 and sketch comedy. I mean, there's no UCB yet. I mean, what was the landscape of in San Francisco? Yeah, no less? I mean, there was, there was bats and there was um, killing my lobster, which was, oh, right. had already been around for a little while. That was uh, that was kind of its own institution. And they would, they actually had the means because they'd been around and, and, worked as a, as like a nonprofit organization. Um, they had this like huge amount of people who were writing with them and, um, somehow they were, I think that they did a nice job of raising money for every next show from the ticket sales of their last show or something, because they constantly did have shows up, but they were doing renting a theater for a month. And that was just not something that we could take on, but the and they whole, had yeah. big production values. Big and stuff. production mm-hmm. values. Like I remember yeah. that they did a show at the Bravo, which we now use yeah. uh, in the mission. And I remember we went to see them they did something that was like a, this, I just remember it was very it was clearly. It like a huge set. It was a huge set. They did like a diamond heist sketch where like, you know, that like Tom Cruise and Mission Impossible coming down. Oh yeah. Like, and they did that. They did they that. They had the person dangling down Yeah, I remember, I just remember being like, whoa, differently. Yeah. We were like, I was so excited about that five cent wig I got right. for our sketch. Were they an inspiration for you? Had you seen them before you started doing sketch yourself? I don't know if they were an inspiration so much as just like. They're an inspiration in the sense of like, oh, wow, look what happens when a bunch of people work really hard. The production values, like mm-hmm. everything. That's how I feel about E.T. Continue. There is. Yeah. But Entertainment there, tonight. There's like at that, <laughs> even at that time, there was like 20 people in the cast or something. This yeah. A lot of them, thing. I think, went to Brown together. I'm, yeah. I'm pretty sure it was a thing that sort of came over, migrated over from a pre-existing um, entity. And but yeah, they were definitely good. I ended up doing some shows with them um, in different iterations down the line. But uh, but yeah, they were sort of. They were a good model of, well, this is this sort of self-contained being, but it, they also had created such a, an institution in and of themselves that we wasn't like we had any um, real connection to them. And, and other than they were just like nice, funny kids, but. But they also felt kind of in a way like the big corporate improv thing. You know what I mean? Like our sketch thing, because they had, they had some sort of underwriting. They were really branded. So they had money, they had branding and they just felt like we were like scrapping to do shows for like 20 people in these tiny little hole in the walls with beams in the middle of the room. Right. So it almost felt like when we put this thing together, we didn't even talk about including them because we thought- We were like, they've got their thing, they're totally established. They have their deal. Like, let's just see if we can coexist in this space. And we had started to meet the other sketch groups at places like the Mock Cafe and and at, at, you know, because some of the people, um, like Cole mentioned in Fresh Robots, Colin Mahan and and W. Kamau Bell and and Al Madrigal were also doing stand-up. We had done these kind of like, the punchline would let us come and do, you know, a variety show and Joe Klosik would host it. So we started to get these connections to um, stand-ups who were also fans of sketch or participants in sketch. And then these other groups that we were meeting as we were, um, booking little cabaret type shows at places like the mock cafe. And, uh, and they were all so different. I mean, those six groups were wildly different one mm-hmm. from the other yeah, and had their own totally separate audiences. And so it was so exciting for us to create that opportunity. Like Cole was mentioning to have people featuring with each other to see kind of where the crossover would be and, and, um, to like, you know, gain more audiences across the board for these different groups. Yeah, I think that was kind of the goal for us was to like create audiences for each other because yeah. at that time outside of, of killing my lobster, I think Casper Hauser probably had the biggest draw and they're doing stuff. I think at the Cowell theater down uh, where bats is basically oh, yeah. it's like down on yeah. the water there. 
And uh, that was a pretty big theater and we would go to see them there and they'd sell it out and that kind of stuff too. So I think the idea was, well, if we all kind of bring our followings together, maybe we can make some new fans and that kind of thing. And it was surprising. I remember like after the run closed, after the first Sketchbus, we all went out to dinner at a Chinese restaurant nearby. And I remember sitting down and talking to Stephen Brophy and Les Milton from White Nose Radio Theater. And they admitted to us when they said, when you, when you saw you guys were doing this and you're charging $12 a ticket, we <laughs> thought you guys were insane. Yeah. We're like, this is never going to work. No one's going to come. We're all going to lose whatever money we put into it, which is just like we split the rental like yeah. five ways or whatever. And I think we took on the rest of whatever publicity we produced were. it as the yeah kind of festival producers. But they thought we were nuts. And then they're like, but you know, wow, I guess it worked. And we like, we didn't know what the hell we were doing. We had no idea. We just thought, well, if you build it, they will come maybe. Yeah. And we had backgrounds in kind of theater and film production from SF State and, you know, whatever kind of cursory skills we had from our jobs in the outside world. Um, and that we really had to put all of that to the test, kind of finding out like, well, is this, do we actually kind of know how to make this happen enough to get by and not lose hopefully too much money? And I, I mean, honestly, like I really think, I mean, the San Francisco Chronicle made our festival. Yeah. I mean, there's no way around that. I mean, yeah. maybe we would have done it again if it had just done okay or something and tried to push it. But the fact that we got the momentum that we got. And then like, I remember Rob Williams came yeah. to see one of the shows and like bought a diet Coke and tipped five bucks. And I was like, Oh my God, oh, he's sure. the best guy in the world. Yeah. Um, but just the fact that he was there and supporting it and knew about it. Cause he knew the, I think the me hands is how mm -hmm. he kind of came you to invested that. Yeah. that $5. Right. And That's so right. many more diet Cokes That's right. <laughs> that we did not now sell. Now we own five diet Cokes. That's right. <laughs> and so did you make money on that first festival? Or break even. Um, oh, I mean, a yeah, bit of I mean, money. a I mean, tiny was, bit. Yeah, it was like here's your seventy five dollars each group. Or something yeah, we like split that, it but... between everybody. I think after yeah. the fact, like for us, we were just we never intended to, to do another one initially. We just did it so we could grow our audience base. And so when year two happened, it was like, okay, well, how do we take this momentum and make it a little bit bigger? And I mean, I credit David Owen for trying to go bigger faster. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad. And David Owen. Um, He's the third co-founder right. of the festival. So basically there's four of us in our sketch group, the three of us plus Gabriel Diani, who at the time was doing a lot of solo performing, was working on a one-man show. And he's like, I don't have the bandwidth to produce something. I'm not interested in that side of it. So he, you know, even though he's performing the festival a bunch in different incarnations, he, he got out of that part of it. And so for year two, we thought, well, maybe we should get a bigger theater. We sold everything out of the Shelton as much as we like it. And I do remember this is one thing we have between us still to this day is the one show we didn't sell out. We sold like 60 out of the 70 seats or something. What and happened? The guy, I know, right? The guy that owns the theater, <laughs> Matthew Shelton, he still does. He's a really cool guy, but he's kind of like this weird snowboarder, kind of hippie, dippy kind of guy. Yuck. And what he, <laughs> what he said was when he saw that we didn't sell out this one show, and I think it was like the last Thursday or something, he went, ah, slowing down. <laughs> So we say that to ourselves all the time. If a yeah. show is like a little empty or something and we draw really well across the board or, you know, it's really, we sell great, but every once in a while there's a show that's a little under or something and because there's a lot going on, we'll always go up, oh, slowing down. Yeah. Because of mogul, course then huh? the next, the rest of the shows after that night sold out. Sold out so right. it's an, it's an, it's, we try to, I think we joke about it, but it's also this sort of reassurance of like, you know, it might feel like that, but we're doing okay. Kind of way of you know, well, tapping was, into that, but. At that point, as a sketch group, what was your goal? Was it, were we want a TV show or you just love doing this? What was the end goal? I don't think we knew. I mean, I think all of us in the back of our heads were like, maybe this could lead to something. Because we did end up doing the U.S. Comedy Arts Festival in Aspen. We were chosen by HBO to go do that. 
So that was cool. And because we did that, and that's a big step, we broke up immediately. Uh, that's what afterwards. you do. Mm. <laughs> oh, here's yeah. a break. Let's just yeah. call it a day. Um, Who's but I, Yoko? Um, we had Yoko was in our group. <laughs> oh, I think yeah. that Yoko was Los Angeles, to be honest mm. with you. Yeah. All due respect to the city in which we now dwell. But we were just peeling off kind of to do that. And, um, yeah, and had, it's, you know. I had I think I jumped first. I had, I'd been wanting to go to L.A. for a while. And um, after year two, year two was the rough year for us. It was the one where like we just didn't we didn't know what we were doing yet. We went too big. We were paying groups like ridiculous amounts of money. Well, yeah, we accepted um, applications from you know there were certainly we were not the first Sketchfest. Uh, there were there were cities that had started doing that where they would you know accept submissions from people outside of just their city, and so we had seen that work. Um, to some degree elsewhere and said, well, that's, you know, that seems like a natural next step. So we did do that, but we also wanted to focus in on maybe, you know, okay, well, is that going to be enough to get using the Chronicle as an example again, but is that enough to get major press interested so that we get that coverage? Because we were, as Cole mentioned, very aware that that had made this huge difference because that city at the time didn't really have that kind of comedy vibe going on, but it had this rich history and roots mm -hmm. in comedy. So that was exactly the kind of thing that something like the Chronicle would pay attention to and that people who live in San Francisco would pay attention to. So we definitely were like, okay, we want to get a bigger theater and we want to bring uh, bring in submissions from all over. But if we have a bigger theater, we also need to make sure that we can fill those seats and the people from out of town aren't necessarily going to have an audience. So we were sort of trying to construct a couple of big headliner um, ideas and offers with the very limited connections that we had. Um, and that was, we, so we ended up with Fred Willard and the, the class that he taught um, in players. Los Angeles, Fred, Fred Willard's Hollywood, Hollywood players. And uh, he and his wife, Mary, um, really helped to sort of produce their side of them coming up. And then we also reached out to the Upright Citizens Brigade. Amy was on SNL, so she wasn't able to come, but um, but the two Mats and Ian did come and played for a few shows. Yeah, and I think the reason we got them, maybe I'm misremembering, is we brought on Tom Sawyer, who was the booker at Cobbs, the owner of Cobbs at the time, and he was interested in helping out and being one of the partners. So for that year, he was. And I think we used his connection to whoever their agent was. Yeah. So we went through proper channels this whole thing because we didn't know anybody. Yeah. But it was yeah. still the second year was going to be one venue, like yep. one month and just shows three nights a week. Yeah. I think Thursday through Sunday was kind of the goal. Yeah. So we think we did four nights a week. Yeah. It was a lot of shows still. It was a lot it of shows. It might have even been more than that because we probably brought in, I don't have the calendar in front of me, but I feel like we had a lot of shows that year. And part of it was that we did do weekday shows with locals too. And then- we and then we were using out of town groups more on the weekends. Yeah, I just remember we just, feeling like, wow, we have a ton of shows. And while we did well with like Fred Willard and UCB and stuff like that too, we had other shows where you'd have like two out of town groups or like an out of town group with a local group. And you know, it's a 200 seat theater, the Eureka, which we still use. It's like our one of our home bases and everybody loves it. But we would have shows where we would have 40 people in the crowd, 30 people in the crowd, which you know, in any given night here in LA, at any of these clubs, 30, yeah, 40 people is fine. Yeah, 20-seat theater, yeah, right. It's fine. twice as many people as the seats. But that's we had right. to pay for it. And and outside of that, we were also paying the, <laughs> we were paying the everybody like st stupid amounts of money for what they were doing. Like, we just didn't know. We didn't get it yet because we didn't really pay anybody the first year. We just split the money, the, <clears throat> the profit between us. Yeah, because we had those relationships. And I will say, I mean, the up, 
side of that is that I think that that's a real reflection of the fact that we are performers, producers. If in fact there's a term like that, you hear about actors, directors and so forth. That was us saying, you know, we really respect these groups. We really respect that they're coming out of pocket to be here. We want to make it worth their while. We want to let them know that we respect what they're doing. And um, we would never want anyone to feel taken advantage of or feel like we didn't care. And that that feeling and that sensibility is really has stayed with us for 15 years. And we still really passionately believe that we just learned the hard way that you can't say to someone, we'll give you $500 no matter what. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, 20 people come and you're like, oh, we just lost hundreds of dollars. And this is only one night of the festival. Right. And that's the the lesson. I mean, you had to learn lessons the hard way, which we have over and over and over again. I mean, I feel at this point, because we've been doing it 15 years now, that we still learn lessons every year, but like, they're not the kind of lessons that are going to be like, well, festival's over. Like, right. <laughs> like we'll take losses here and there, but we do such a huge volume that, you know, something else is wildly successfully great and helps cover that show that didn't do so well. Like those are, yeah, you sort of learn how to hedge your bets with, with the kind of risk you can take. And, and sometimes, you know, the idea is that we don't, we try not to keep learning the same lesson yeah. over and over. So if we sort of, you know, we got these five things right and this sixth thing wrong, let's try this sixth thing differently. But then the seventh thing can be this thing that we're totally unsure of. And and the thing we've learned too is like we get pretty huge names in comedy there. But there's others that we haven't had yet that we'd love to have, but we'll just never be able to afford them. And we we realize that. Like they have to understand that it's a festival. It's not a college gig where they have to spend their booking entertainment money or whatever. It's not- yeah this giant thing with this huge corporation behind them. Or ticket spend, sales. Or right, just ticket sales. It's going to spend $100,000 to advertise it or whatever. We don't yeah. have that bandwidth. We can't afford to take that risk. So there's certain people that like we may never have that we would love to have, but because they just I'll don't. do it. All right, Jamie. Thank, thank you. you. Yeah, uh, they I just won't, they won't do it for, you know, we're definitely taking advantage of people. We're, we're paying people what we can, what we think is fair. Um, but you know, it's, it's always going to, there's always going to be somebody that's slightly unattainable because they don't want to leave their house unless X amount is met. Well, how much as far, I mean, so year two UCB and I'm Fred Willard. So that's a big pickup. So then, um, as the festival is growing, at what point do people start really coming to you guys? Or do you still have to ask everybody? I know as a booker, um, and everyone kind of assumes it's, oh, it's the Hollywood improv. You just ask and they come, but it's, it's especially in LA difficult. Everyone's busy and the big names have crazy schedules. So how much of it, or have you seen over the years, um, more people coming to you? We definitely get a lot more people approaching us now. A lot of agents pitching us, um, mostly on their mid-level clients that people sort of know, but don't really know yet. And they want them to play the festival. And then we'll be like, we're open to it. And they'll be like, great. Uh, $20,000 or something. We'll be like, what are you talking about? (laughs) No, we have to sell these seats. Like, let's figure something out that makes sense. Um, but we definitely do have a lot of agents pitching on us now. And now we've actually had a lot more agents and managers come to the festival to kind of just check it out and see what it's about. Because I don't, I think they're starting to get it now, but they didn't for many, many years. They didn't understand why their clients wanted to come up and do this thing. But now I think they start to get it. At Mm -hmm. least a good portion of them do. Yeah. And we definitely have some really, really terrific managers and agents who have got on board early and have, you know, those sorts of, those sorts of relationships behind the scenes with managers and agents who really do get it and appreciate it. And then the performers who have a great experience um, just increased the probability or possibility of us getting people that we wanted exponentially. You know, when you have 
it's that that showed us, I think, the ripple effect pretty immediately, which, you know, as soon once you have this person and that everyone it's like Fred Willard, everyone knows who that is in our business and respects him. And if he was willing to come and had a good experience, then they'll come. And then the waves out from there. UCB has this tremendous impact on this tremendous amount of people who go, oh, the you know, those guys did it great. That sounds like mm-hmm. it's legit. So um, we owe so much to to those voices who aren't us saying you should really do this festival. Yeah, we don't get like laughed out of town anymore, so to speak. Because yeah. like we've always, with our big tributes and big people that we've gotten, we'll, we'll just like send passionate letters to their management or agents or to them directly through somebody basically saying, hey, we run this little thing. We'd like to pay tribute to you. These other people have done it. Come on up. It'll take care of your costs. We'll pay a little something like, you know, come do it. And like that's getting easier every year now, I think, at least to get a response and to get a conversation started. Yeah. And sometimes it's late in the game. Like sometimes we've already announced our lineup or whatever. And then all of a sudden, like this past year, it was like we were trying to get Billy Crystal with Alan's Bell. We'd had Alan once before too with Gary Shandling and thought, oh, let's do it like a collaborators thing with the two of them. And, and Alan was into it and stuff. And so I'd written Billy's management and called them and stuff like that, but it wasn't really getting much traction. So I thought it was dead. And then just all of a sudden, like a week or two after we had like announced, even like, like a week after we had announced, yeah, it, it was, was like, really fast. Hey, Billy's interested. What's the next steps? And we're like, Oh, what? <laughs> and then it's like trying to figure it out from there. I'm like, is it too late? Can we still do it? Well, it's Billy Crystal. Yeah. Let's make it happen. That kind of thing. Well, what, why don't you guys talk about too? Like this festival is kind of unlike most other festivals and how it evolved from, you know, sketch to maybe it's that second year with more standup, or even if it had that, like at what point would you say it really hit the stride of what it's become today, which is, you know, this place for all um, aspects of comedy. Yeah. It definitely wasn't stand up the second year. No, no. I think it was a good way into it that we yeah. opened it up to because we took sketch out of the name. Like yeah. it's still SF sketch fest, but it used to be SF sketch Fest, the San Francisco sketch comedy festival. And now it's SF sketch Fest, the San Francisco comedy festival. And I'm not sure exactly when we did that, but I want to say it was around year five or six or something mm-hmm. when we started to realize there's only a little bit of sketch out there. <laughs> I mean, there's not a lot of sketch on TV. Like at least at that point there was all our heroes, like kids in the hall and SNL and things like that. But there wasn't like, it's kind of made a rebound now with like key and peel and broad city and all that kind of stuff. But there wasn't as much of that going on then and we realized okay there's only so much we can bring in if we're going to keep it this way and even like up and coming groups that didn't seem to be that many more popping up so we realized if we wanted to keep this thing going we needed to kind of open it up and include kind of all sorts of comedy and even like in year three I remember we did like a music night Mm -hmm. and that's when you sort of realize like oh wait a minute there are actually some kind of hybrids even within the stuff that we love that we can certainly say we have a, you know, we can defend bringing out because it has a sketch element to it. But once you start opening those doors, you start thinking about the other stuff you love and you go, well, God, I love this. And I guess technically it's not really sketch. Like Girls Guitar Club, that's really music with some great banter in between, but they're so talented and so funny and so charming. We'd be crazy not to try to get them. So you start thinking outside the box more and more and more. And then again, that's the sort of other ripple effect where you go, well, God, if we like this and we like all of these other things and this isn't technically that, but we feel really confident that that San Francisco is going to go for it because that's the other huge component of this is that we have these amazing audiences in San Francisco who show up time and again, then why wouldn't we try to make that happen? Cause we don't think it's going to come here. Otherwise, a lot mm-hmm. of the time it's that. And even then, like I just think back to the, you know, year three, four or five, we're still growing and we had an audience, but like they weren't that big yet. And we never were sure like even do that music night in year three, this is at the Eureka again, 200 seats, one show. 
And that show was like Fred Armisen hosted it. So he did like, you know, his characters, music stuff in between things. It was Naked Trucker, which is David Koechner and Dave Gruber Allen and Girls Guitar Club, which is Karen Kilgariff and Marilyn Rice Club. Like that show should sell out in a second. We sold like a hundred tickets, which is fine. It was a good show and people enjoyed it, but like it didn't sell out. Nowadays that would be done in a second. Um, anywhere. Where but, do you, where do you, when do you think that tipping point happened where um, it was just kind of became part of the ether of the city and just... You know, you announced tickets and we're selling. Wait, right that away. was it. Took a long time. I feel like it was around year eight. Yeah, I uh, agree with that. That we started to feel like we were running into more people who knew about it than didn't, or at least an equal number of, and that we started to see real results from announcing our tickets going on sale and that kind of thing. That there was this, there was that kind of momentum. But I don't know that we really felt that by year ten. We thought like oh, we've actually built something, which feels like a cliche because it. Sh- you want to believe that it won't take that long, but, but it does. It really does. And no, we really it, yeah. did kind of go, that was a, that was the first year that I think we started being able to look backwards nostalgically and kind of have a perspective on it where I really feel like, especially up until your year eight, we kind of just had to put our heads down and just power through it. And, you know, there are moments when you go, I don't know why I'm doing this. And then there are moments when you go, I can't believe I wondered why I, I'm doing this, you know, and right. it's, we it goes all, back and forth very dramatically. We were all working retail jobs or whatever through most of the first 10 years of the festival, you know, and now we all do other things in, in, in addition to that. But like, it's become a thing that we can all kind of live off of ish <laughs> considering the amount of time we put into it like it should right <laughs> um but yeah i definitely took a while was your eight conan was that was that that year i can't remember i kind of feel like it, it was might have been. i think it might have been year nine or seven <laughs> thank you very, very much. possible yeah. i think well, this is such a great metaphor i mean i mean just i mean for a comedy career no matter what you're doing of course you're not gonna know until you're 10 and hindsight's always twenty twenty, but um, uh, I think you know Dave has a, an adorable little girl, um, and but but for those first few years when none of us had kids, um, that's true when you sort of start looking around year eight, nine, ten, where you go. God, we really have a child together. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The three of us have a child. And sometimes it's good cop, bad cop. We're like one, you know, one day someone's like, this is so hard. I don't think I can do it anymore. And the other two are like, no, no, stick, you know, stick with it. We got this thing. We figured it out and you're not by yourself. We're a team, you know? And, and then again, there are other moments where we get to sort of put our arms around each other at the back of a theater when, you know, someone we love is getting a standing ovation from this amazing San Francisco audience and go, you know, my God, we built this thing. How did this happen? And we definitely like, I think it's a series of fortuitous events that at the time might not have seemed that way, you know, like things early on, like me moving to LA, you moving a year later, as much as that could have killed this thing. It made it really hard to perform as a sketch group, as we mentioned earlier. Yeah. So I think it killed killed that, but as producers, especially with technology moving how it was starting to, we used to like get together at, and Dave and my apartment at the time with a big board with like a, like a calendar from Staples or whatever, and just put like toast post-it notes up on it being like, uh, should we put this group here and this group there or whatever? Now it's just like Google mm-hmm. docs and spreadsheets mm-hmm. and stuff. And we're able to do conference calls and search like it's, yeah, <laughs> it's easier. We don't have to be in the same city. Yeah. You know, we have people that we bring on that are like, like our Aaron, who is, does a lot of tra- uh, transportation and stuff for us. He's amazing. Like he's in South Africa for a lot of the year. Yeah, and things oh, wow. like he's, that in too. The, he's a real nomad. Yeah. Right. We started to bring in and Dave had done a bunch of work on other festivals. So he really brought in a tremendous amount of expertise and experience from seeing how other things worked and 
you know, inspiration from, but also sort of warnings from like, okay, well you, you know, he had the benefit of seeing this, maybe not do so well, Mm -hmm. this type of infrastructure, this type of, you know, way of dealing with a contract or something like that. And then Cole and I were in LA and we were getting the chance to really meet and become friends with a bunch of people that we feel very lucky to know and love and, um, and working down here on our own and doing improv and all that kind of stuff. So we were able to grow the business and the back end at the same time that we were developing personal relationships with people that we consider still to be heroes, you know? And I would say that like the other like unsung, like hero of SF sketch us is the kids in the hall. And the reason I say that is when we were all doing sketch comedy, our name totally false people was taken from the kids in the hall, 2000 tour booklet where in Mark McKinney's bio, it says rumors that he was gay, totally false people led to blah, blah, something like that. But we just saw that phrase and liked him. We we're big, huge fans. So we all came out of that, like loving them. That was a goal for us very early on to try to get kids in the hall to and Mr. Us. Show and Mr. Show, yeah. yeah. And we got first. We got I think it was Bruce first, right? So mm-hmm. Bruce McCullough somehow we got to come up and do his solo, like a solo thing where yeah. he would like do monologues and stories and play like guitar and bass and stuff like that. It was really cool. And then the next year, um, he he came was a really back. good litmus. He was like, you know, I like what you guys are doing. Because Bruce has a punk rock sensibility. Yeah, like he, he definitely did. is like, fuck it, I'll do it. Yeah, he was like kind of the punk rock kid, if you look back on that stuff and some of the pieces he did on the show. So I think he liked the fact that we were very independent. We were kind of like, you know, playing at these, I don't want to say CD theaters, so they're not, they're not, but they we weren't playing these majestic ballrooms. Like the, the kids in the hall. I mean, mm-hmm. the kids right. in the hall come to the Warfield and we had Bruce McCullough at a 200 seat theater and right. he was totally down with that. Yeah, he loved that. Um, and then we got, I think Foley, did Foley come next? I think so because he, yeah, he did because he was real connected to the sort of um, Dave Gruber, Allen, Steve Allen theater kind of uh, side of things. So he, that was a nice kind of like, okay, he has this reason and these people telling him he should do it. And then Bruce also had said to do it. And so, so he yeah. came and then like, I th- that was the year that somehow we got them, the city to call it like SF Sketchfest day or something. And they brought like a little mayor made a proclamation. Mayor made a proclamation wow. and fully read yeah. it, kind of taking the piss out of it, but it was Hilarious. funny. And Scott um, Thompson came early on too. He, he did, did that too. music night yeah. really early on with him. And then we finally got them all there yeah. and did a big tribute where one one day we, they did a big sketch show like they've been touring around with. And then the next day they just like sat down and did a conversation with Paul Myers and it was great. And that's when we sat there and went, oh my God, like we did it. We got the kids in the hall piecemeal first then the mm-hmm. entire group player festival and then afterwards went and like hung out with them in their suite and have become really good friends with most of them yeah. and it's just a weird you guys should start with the harlem globetrotters now sure in 18 years sure you might have a similar no, so here's story. the thing sure. first we would get the washington generals yeah, there you go because you gotta get good their thinking. friends before we get to them good it's actually thinking. a great idea <laughs> the oracle arena harlem globetrotters SF Sketchfest presents. Oh, I would be all over that. I'd be all over the Globetrotters. I love seeing the Globetrotters. They're yeah, rad. Man. But well, that's the kind of thing we do do, though. It's like we do weird yeah. shit like that where we'll be like, huh, like, what about the Harlem Globetrotters? Yeah. I well, don't that's, know. That actually leads to the next question is how much of the festival at this point is um, outgoing versus incoming, meaning... How many people are you reaching out to versus how many submissions are you getting that you're... Oh, we get a ton of up and coming submissions. And as Cole said, we get a ton of agents and managers uh, reaching out to us. And then we also have repeat performers Mm -hmm. who say, I hope you're planning on having me back to Sketchfest. It's my favorite time of year and all that kind of good stuff. And, but we still do a tremendous amount of outreach. Yeah. And and also like with the up and coming performers, is that something that we've made it very clear that we don't want to lose sight of as much as we get all these big headliners and stuff like that too. We still do tons of local showcases, um, up and coming sketch, improv, stand up, whatever. And we take a 
good amount of people. We get like 500 plus applications or whatever. Um, and we, you know, we watch everything, get at least a second set of eyes on everything and do the best we can to try to figure out who to bring and that kind of stuff. And How, as many people you, as we can. Um, cause that's what a lot of listenership for this podcast is, is, is young comics and performers. What, um, what stands out to you? I mean, in this day and age, especially, I mean, I imagine having a really well-produced video. There's no excuse not to. But sound what, what and, do yeah, you look sound, for? Sound and picture quality is pretty huge, especially really sound. Key. There's still people that do, like, they recorded their set from the back, like, seven miles away on an, on an iPhone. iPhone. And you can't, it's just a white blob, and you can barely see them or hear them. Like, yeah. even with sketch and improv group stuff, too, you'll get poorly produced tapes that, like, you'll just, basically, it'll be like this. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And I was like, I don't know. I yeah, can't tell really anything hard. from this. And it's, and it's harder and harder for us. I and mean, we, we really try to write people back and say, hey, this, you know, this is not great. Do you have something else we can see? Because by not great, we just mean the quality of the audio and video, not even the material. We can't even tell what the material mm -hmm. is. Um, but the more submissions we get, the harder it becomes for us to do that kind of follow-up. So as much as everybody can, you know, put together the best version, best representation of themselves, out of the gate, then the more likely that it's going to stand out to us, you know? And yeah. two, you know, it, it's hard because sometimes you can't pick up the audience response and a show's going really well. But when you see it on a video, you can't tell that there's any response. And right. so the, as a producer, it's hard not to pay attention to that, at least for a little bit and go, gosh, are they playing well? I mean, are people responding to them? I think this is kind of funny, but I, I can't be the only one who thinks that kind of thing. And we get it wrong. Yeah, we get it wrong a lot. You know, that we look back and not wrong in the sense that we take somebody in who then shits the bed on stage, but wrong in the sense that like we'll pass on somebody who's amazing, but we just couldn't tell something from their tape yeah. or it just happened to be that some, the, somebody, first person who watched it was like, had watched 25 in a row and was a little tired, didn't quite love as much as they would have. And the next person who looked at it, maybe same boat or something, or just something missing from that tape. Yeah, it's hard. I mean, comedy is so subjective and we really try to keep that in mind and we, we don't, all, you know, we may say, I, we, we've certainly agreed on something where we're like, this might not be my number one go-to in style, but I totally respect the hard work that went into this and people are loving it. And we know that there's an audience for this type of comedy. And so we'll go down that road for sure. We're not like, oh God, we don't, you know, I have to be laughing my ass off. It's not, it's really isn't that. Um, we try to keep as broad a perspective as we can. And we try to get as much representation of all the different types of people who are doing comedy as well. And sometimes that happens. Sometimes, you know, we have, you know, we've already seen and accepted six amazing groups of all white guys. Mm -hmm. I hate to say it, but then you get this one stellar submission that's a little bit later, comes in a little bit later or something like that. And you do kind of have to say like, these guys are great. I can't wait to have them next year. But, you know, we have these, we have a lot of great diversity that right. we really need to make sure we try to get in here and represent as well. Especially when like, I've been seeing a lot of like Facebook posts from people from these other festivals that I've not heard of before that have like, <laughs> like 56 white men, two women. Or something like that. And like, that's like a literal thing that was happening. That's all the thing going on. I was like, thank God that we like really make a, an effort to try to book as diverse a lineup as we can, not only from like, you know, male, female, in, uh, different ethnicities, but also just style and, and sense of humor, you know? And that goes back to the first festival. I mean, honestly, for doing sketch, for doing an all local six group sketch comedy festival, it was wildly different styles of material. And we love that. We love that it was eclectic and we want to, we've always wanted to hold on to that spirit. And yeah. how much, how much diversity as far as how many people are from LA or New York versus 
the rest of the country or the you know world. what's funny about that is there are people that will complain like i'll see things that are like oh it's the new york la comedy festival in san francisco and i and i want to yell at them that's where people move when they're serious about their craft yeah. they move to new york they move to la because that's where the jobs are so the applications coming from new york and la tend to be better are those people new yorkers or angelinos no maybe for the last three or four years Maybe before that, they were from Austin. Maybe before that, they were from Chicago. Maybe before that, they were from Michigan. You know, yeah. it's, you never know. There and we are, get really excited when we get, we had a great stand-up from Denver last year. Yeah. We get so excited when it's like, Minnesota, you know, that's what, like, when you get up to the upper states of Michigan where Cole grew up and, you know, this sort of like, oh, they're, you know, shout out to Philly. Like, we love the, to have as diverse a group as possible nationally and internationally, mm -hmm. um, it's super exciting for us. And I would say that we lean harder into liking someone from Phoenix or someone from Kansas city Philadelphia. because we want to show that there's great, exciting stuff happening everywhere. So ironically, it's a complaint. If we would get that about LA and New York is, you know, that's in spite of what we're looking for. Right. Yeah. Like honestly, like when we're putting together sheets from where everybody is, it has their name, where they're from, um, and you know, what kind of what we thought about them or whatever, just so we just kind of take a look at that and be like, God, we just took like 27 standups from LA. Um, but we, you know, we take a ton from Portland. That's like a hub, you know, mm -hmm. a few from Seattle, Chicago, a few from Austin, definitely. Chicago, like Boston, but we also don't get very many from other places. And I think part of that is because that's why we get so excited when we see that yeah. someone's coming from somewhere else. We're like, everybody heads up. Exactly. Like, I think that's, part of like, I, I don't think we get as many of those as some of the other festivals do because of the reputation we have now is I think some of the comics who are a little greener just don't even bother applying because they don't think they have a chance to get in, which they might, you know, there's people we definitely watch that were like, Oh, this kid really is funny. They have something. They're not quite ready yet next year. Mm -hmm. Or we take him and we give him a shot. But yeah. we definitely recognize that there's people we've taken who've applied like two or three times in a row. And then we're finally like, let's give him a shot this year. We've given them like bees, but we like them. Yeah. Let's throw them up there. And then they do great. And then they end up coming back every year. And two, you know, when we were living in San Francisco, we wouldn't have wanted people from New York or LA or some other festival to go, oh, they're from San Francisco. They're not going to be as good as LA and New York because that's not how we felt about what we were doing, you know? Mm -hmm. so. And we take a lot of local standups from San Francisco too, like a ton. And we take as many as we can um, because we want to like serve the local scene there too because the standup scene is pretty strong in San Francisco. Well, I would say that this, the scene up there is better than ever. And I would credit the festival for helping really build that culture um, up there. I mean, going back to 2001 when I was up there as well. And that was it. You know, you had a handful of sketch teams and a small uh, stand-up scene, but it's seemingly one of the hubs now. Well, that's all. And that, that again, it's, it's this sort of, you know, family of things that have to exist together. And, and that includes people who came before us and before the festival. And that's why, again, it's really exciting for us if we get a great Detroit comic and we can have anything to do with them becoming noteworthy before they leave Detroit, if they leave, um, because, that's one of the things that inspires people in San Francisco. It begets more comedy because you feel it's possible. You know, we look at, you know, all the people that were up doing comedy in San Francisco um, from Robin to Mort Saul, but also people in between where you're sort of looking at like the what ended up being the kind of uncabaret down in, in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. But that, you know, Al, but also like I feel like. Janine and Patton and all those people spent some time up there. And mm -hmm. there's a sort of group of really cool people from the kind of Mr. Show era mm -hmm. where 
where there were people that came up and scouted San Francisco because they knew like this is a real, you know, um, Cara Welker and Dave Rath, who ended up helping Totally False People as well. Uh, they knew they were very savvy. They were like, we while everyone else is going to clubs in, in Los Angeles, we scoot up to San Francisco so we can find the next Patton Oswalt. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I, I and then that would happen. And they would help foster that sensibility in San Francisco. And so people look at someone like Moshe Kasher, you know, a 20 year old now looks at Moshe Kasher and goes, Moshe's from San Francisco, pr loud and proud. You right. know, if he can do it, I can. Yeah. Alex Cole, Chris Thayer, um, Janine Brito. There's a lot that have come through there. And that's one thing I'll say too, is like, we do get a lot of people scouting. We get a lot of entry that come now. We have people that have gotten signed and gotten meetings and development deals and stuff, but we've always been like a audience and, and show first industry second festival. And I think part of that was like what, kind of what we learned being performers going to other festivals and stuff too. Like even U.S. Comedy Arts Festival was like, those audiences weren't fun <laughs> at all. Like they were like <laughs> skied out, sunburned, drunk. coked up, drunk. <laughs> you know, they weren't supportive in any way, shape or form. It was a huge step for us. And we had a great time, but it was like, gosh, as a performer, it feels like we're dying. Yeah. And these are things, sketches we had done hundreds of times at that point because yeah. they're very careful about what we, how, what we did up there and stuff was just kind of getting eh, responses. The only reassurance we had is that we were paired uh, at least at one point with Rob Riggle and Rob Hubel doing something and yeah. they had the same reaction and we were like laughing, dying <laughs> with tears streaming down our faces. So we were like, okay, it might be the audience. Right. So we, you know, we, we've never made it about the, the, the industry experience for industry. We don't want to do that thing where like agents like, and want to send assistants up to just party in San Francisco for the weekend. We're like, that's not what this is about. If you want to come up and scout new emerging talent, we will comp you into every new fresh face kind of show that we do. Um, but if you just want to come up to see Billy Crystal for free, it's not going to happen. Mm -hmm. yeah. Like that's not what we're here to do. And I think that's, if we did that, we well. couldn't afford to bring, you know, a lot of the people who don't necessarily sell tickets, but that we can have, you know, feature for somebody who will, or, you right. know, and also I do want to really quickly shout out Bob Odenkirk because he, mm -hmm. like the kids in the hall, they came early and often, and particularly Bob, like he's the busiest person in the world now right. and he doesn't really have the time, but you know, he wears the sketch fest shirt all the time. So to show Walter, yeah, Showalter we'll see time. these various like, Oh, that's from year five. Oh, that's from year 10. Like just really herald the festival. And when we made, um, years and years ago, we made a little sort of sizzle reel to try to get sponsors interested. And Bob was like the first one to say like, Oh, come, let me say nice things about sketch fest. How can I help? Even if I can't be there. So having those kind of emissaries and, you know, people who later joined our advisory board, yep. um, really. And Bart Coleman, you know, he's somebody who was constantly championing the festival to anyone who would listen. Um, Lorraine Newman, Lorraine Newman, just so many, so many people that we love and respect. And if we have a question about something, a sun tight, uh, we will reach out to them and say, what do you think about this? Or do you, could you help with this? Or, you know, you, you, you said that you wanted to help us in whatever way possible. Now we're, you know, calling you to task. <laughs> Sorry, but they right. really, they really always show up for us. And, um, and we're, you know, just incredibly grateful. And I will say that a question that we kind of circumvented from is what we look for in these emerging groups that come mm -hmm. outside mm -hmm. of just like quality of tape um, is like a point of view, a good, strong point of view, um, smart joke writing, not lazy joke writing. I'm, you know, I'm not, <laughs> I mean, I, I've never used pot in my life. So maybe that's why I'm not the target audience for that. But there's some comics that lean so heavily on that. And it's the entire thing. And I'm, that turns me, I'm immediately just like, eh. Not like, everyone <laughs> is as funny as Doug Benson. Right. Doug can Parker. get away with it. Yeah. Doug's also like the sharpest person ever, no matter yeah. what his state of mind is. Yeah, he is. God, um, I wish I could be that sharp. Right. 
Um, so I don't know. There's there's certain things that certain topics or certain stuff just feels like it's been done or feels a little lazy. And those are the kind of stuff I think that turns us off. But whenever anybody has like an interesting point of view, um, a, a fun persona, like early on, we were huge Ron Funches fans just because he's so goddamn likable. Yeah. Right. Like that's just early on. We're like, or birthday boys. I yeah. was like, oh my God, they're, you know, and certainly they had that experience at the UCB in LA too, but just felt very fresh. I mean, I deal with persistent comics that live in LA. Well, that live anywhere, but how much do you guys have to deal with, you know, persistent comics or, uh, people that might not have a filter or how much, how, how much tension do you have to deal with in booking a festival? All right. Well, every year I get an email from this guy, Jamie Flam, and uh, it's just the war. One email a year. Is that persistent? <laughs> no. <laughs> Good point. Uh, no, we definitely have people that, you know, we have really pers persistent managers. Um, mm -hmm. we have, you know, we definitely have people who, who, who are on our radar. I think the hardest part is if like, I take the time to everybody we don't take, I take the time to write an individual email to, instead of just doing some sort of like BCC blind copy, one email, send it out to everybody at once thing, because I know as a performer, you don't like to be told no, or you don't like to be told you're not good enough right now. That, that, that feeling in your mind, it's you awful. know, it's no awful. one wants that. And we so. still experience that by the way, because we perform and stuff. So it's yep. not like that's there. If there ever was a question of whether we lost sight of something, trust me, we didn't because I know exactly what it feels like to look at a submission and then go to an audition that same day and have zero response and not get something. Doesn't and it hurts. Empathy hurts. Yeah. But I think it's yeah. really good for us. That's what Cole's saying is he's so connected to that feeling that he doesn't, you know, however someone ends up taking the rejection, we never want it to be impersonal or cold. I take the time to write everybody individually. And like, I try to like not cut people loose until we're absolutely sure. There's times where we think there's nothing left, but I'll keep like 10 people like kind of sitting out there because like, I don't want to tell them no yet. Maybe something will open up and they do have the time. And I'll write a handful of people and be like, look, well, I love you. I can't, I don't have a spot for you right now. If something opens up, I'm honestly going to get in touch. Right. And then all of a sudden somebody writes, Hey, I got a gig. I can't make it. So I have two slots available. I write them and they're like, jump in and it makes their year or whatever. Like, it's nice to be able to say yes, as much as we can. And it kills me. There's people that like, they, they have a good experience. They want to come back every year and they apply every year. And like, we can't take them every single year. And that's the hard part. I know Bridgetown basically says, if you did the festival last year, don't apply this year. Yeah. And again, we've had that experience with our own performances where we, we are like, we always want to go back to this festival. Right. And they're like, God, we love you. But you know, we just don't have the bandwidth. We, you, and, and sometimes they say we do, we do one weekend guys. We don't do three weekends right. uh, with stuff all through the weeks too. So we have to take a break and it doesn't mean that we're not going to ask you back. So again, we know what that feels like. So there are people that like, they won't take it well, you know, well, even with the thing up, they'll be pissed off. We get less about that. We get less people lashing out and being like, F you guys, you're the worst or whatever. That happens occasionally. But it's mostly people that are hurt, they're a little wounded, that basically want to know what's what's wrong with me? What's mm -hmm. Why did my tape not resonate with you? What did you not like about it? And half the time I'm like, dude, I only vaguely remember, like I remember you, but I don't remember your content. I don't remember your jokes because I've watched 500 tapes. Um, and if I did remember your jokes, most likely you're in. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because there's something that resonated. But- and if I have time, I'll try to go back and take a quick look just to refresh myself so I can say like, Hey, you know, you need to pace your set a little bit better or whatever. But like, I also don't want to be like, I don't want to give them advice that will hurt them for something else. Maybe it's not what we're looking for, but maybe it is what somebody else is looking for. So that's the hardest part is like when people are like, what's wrong? Yeah. What's unless it's a totally objective thing. Like we literally couldn't hear you. 
Right. You know, then yeah. it's just. Or it gets literally half the time it's like, you know, you and 30 other people, we basically rated the same yeah. and we had room for 10 of you. Right. And you're good. And you happen to do two sketches that unbeknownst to you, we have seen almost word for word in mm-hmm. years past. It's not your fault. It's a collective conscious, but that is going to be tough for us to, you know, that's the kind of, when you get down to the nitpicking where you have to make a decision, sometimes it's, it's not arbitrary, but it could be something that you shouldn't have known or couldn't have known, but we have to make the decision that we make. And Ooh, yeah, I'll give this, it. I'll give this to sketch groups out there. There's two sketches I can't watch anymore. <laughs> all right. After all these years, one, it's a f- fake chaos. <laughs> the whole, like the show is going great. Bob, I thought we weren't going to do this bit. Well, I want to do this bit. You've ruined the show. Like that whole thing. Like I'm like, Oh God, oh, the guys. Fake chaos bit. right. The fake chaos bit. I'm tired of that. And then, uh, the bit where one person comes out and goes, Greeting, response to greeting, query about day, response to query about day, uh, impassioned re- resp- rejoinder. But what are the lines? That's, like, what are these? That's the joke. That's the thing. <laughs> um, there's a lot of groups that that think that's fresh and clever, but it's been done twenty seven thousand times. So please don't. Sorry, Topeka. Don't do that again. Been there, done that. Don't do that again. Please. I'm sorry to call it Topeka. And what about stand-up? I wanted to ask you guys, because uh, like you, I came from a sketch background. And if you told me I'd be booking a, a, a club, you know, 14 years later, I would have laughed in your face. But um, how much has your uh, uh, savvy as far as um, stand-ups? And, and was there a shift where you started booking more and really started understanding the, the ebbs and flows of, of the stand-up world more? Well, we've done this thing for a long time called The Dozens which is 12 co-headlining comics that each do 35 minute sets with an opener um, at the punchline for people that we feel are like about to blow up, but haven't yet. Um, and then we look back at our track record on that and we've, we've done pretty damn well. <laughs> There's people that, you know, like I think Moshe was a dozens person. Um, Ron Funches definitely was Nikki Glazer. Mm. Um, There's tons of others, but you know, I feel like, where we've been pretty good about handpicking people that like have maybe a handful of like, I did Conan once um, kind of stuff that don't really, that mostly feature don't really headline yet. Um, and then they've blown up after the fact. And um, I don't know, I think we're pretty, we're pretty aware of comics and stuff. And if we're not, we'll like ask people that we trust, like a Jamie flam be like, Hey, who's, who's really making waves at the improv right now or whatever. So we can take a look at them. Um, Spanglers are kind of, Really heating up the scene here at the improv right now. Hey, we had you guys two, three years ago. (laughs) So we're on that. We're in the know. Yeah. Uh, No, but our partner, Dave, I think was, was really good at, um, identifying pretty early on when we started booking standups that it was important to have something like the dozens where you can kind of figure out a way to brand the sort of level that people are coming in on so that there's this, there's a language that we can use to, let people know what to expect and, um, and give the right audiences for those comedians and, you know, have those conversations with agents and managers where we can say like, well, we think this is, you know, we have a, a show that we call the threesome, right? Because it's not, um, the dozens do a smaller, uh, they do a smaller theater, they do the punchline and they do, um, they co-headline with each other on two shows. And then dozens would happen at a place like Cobbs where it's, it's twice as large, but it's like three people who are beat, like kind of past maybe the dozens level of draw or notoriety on television and stuff, which by the way, it has nothing to do with how funny or talented someone is. We could have the, you know, the most brilliant person in the world who will be the most famous person in the world. And right now there are a dozen, Mm -hmm. Uh, but, uh, 
but to find the ways of classifying that so that we have a way of looking at it when we're programming it and kind of identifying what slots we have. And, uh, and then, you know, Cole's always putting together like these phenomenal show showcases of people from all over. Um, but yeah, a way, a way, a way of uh, looking at a language for standup that we, with our background wouldn't necessarily have had at the beginning, but that we sort of cultivated. And we also like in an endeavor to take more people, more standups, we don't have as many sets as some other festivals do. Some other festivals, you come and you do four sets or something. Some of the big headliners are going to do that for us. Like Paul F. Tompkins does like 78 things while he's in town. <laughs> but um, some of the more emerging standups will come up and do two, two minute, ten, two, 10 minute sets on shows, right? One on Friday night, one on Saturday night or whatever in small venues, you know, 40 seats to 80 seats or that kind of thing. But we put, you know, seven, eight people on show. It sells out. It's good energy, whatever. That's the things that people come and scout but they get to be part of the thing because mm -hmm. they do Their two sets. looks just like Bob Odenkirk. Yeah. Badge. They're at the same party that Bob Odenkirk is at. They're all hanging out and getting to know each other. So from that sense, there's a big sense of camaraderie. It's like a party in a sense with the shows are a party themselves because the audiences are great and we all have a good time. And then they get to their sets, but they don't have a bunch. So I'll get a bunch of people writing me and be like, Hey, can I get another set while I'm in town? And I was like, would love to give it to you. Don't have it because I took 17 other people to allow them all to do it. So that's kind of what that is. How much time a year of, um, of the year is spent preparing for this festival? I mean, we're working on it year round, yeah. mm -hmm. but, but we're not but, working 40 hours a week, every single week on it year round. Work, work about 10 days. Yeah. Just about, <laughs> just about 10 days. No, it's uh, I would say what I always tell people is because the festival's in January is it gets intense, like August on, so that's when we're and just increases really, in intensity. Yeah. Until it's over. And then we get a couple months that are like, you know, we're just trying to like dot the I's, cross the T's post festival and then work on a few things in the summer. We're usually working outside lands, comedy tent a bit there and um, doing a few stray shows here and there. So it calms down a bit during that time. But it's it's like crazy full time for half of the year, I'd say. And then what what uh, what are you guys working on individually? When you're not working on this festival. If you care to share, <laughs> this is our CTS care to share segment of gatekeeper CTS. Fantastic. Well, we're excited to go back to Bridgetown comedy festival with theme park improv. So yeah, that's yeah. going to be always fun. And what's theme park? Doing that. It's a thing we do where we, uh, we get a theme from the audience and usually have a guest monologist, which we should find one for theme park. Good idea. Uh, for Bridgetown. And, uh, we do scenes based on that and it's kind of a rotating cast of people, but, um, it's usually me and Janet, Jessica Makinson, um, John Michael Higgins, Michael Hitchcock, Ian Brennan, Rachel Dratch when she can. Um, Oscar Nunez. Yep, Oscar Nunez from time to time, Danny Pudi, um, Simon Helberg. Both of them have multiple children, so that gets tough. But. Scott Adsit has done it a mm -hmm. decent amount too. Um, some combination of those people. I mean, go and we do other festivals. We never play LA. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. No, we're basically all here. Um, so yeah, we get to, we do that at Sketchfest every year. And then occasionally we've done it at Bridgetown. We've done it at, um, Moon Tower, Benson Ball. Um, Vancouver. Yep. It's fun. It's really fun. Well, you've both made, um, beautiful careers in the last two decades. Ugh. <laughs> and we both have our podcast too. I pop my culture and podcast. Got JB yeah. Club. Yeah. I do a show called you're the worst on FXX. Um, that's going into its third season. Um, I do a lot of comic cons for this thing I was on called the legend of Korra. Um, I do stuff with the work juice players, which is, this is all like really niche stuff. So some people will be like, that means nothing to me. Most people, but some people will, will be like, that means everything. that means everything to me. And I don't know when this gets released, but we're going to be at WonderCon on Friday night, the 25th of March pre Easter. 
Uh, we're doing Pop My Culture in room 515A at 8 o'clock p.m. with guests Maurice LaMarche and Rob Paulson, Pinky in the Brain. Wow, wonderful, cool. guys. So that'll be fun. So if you're there, come, please. Awesome. Yeah. Well, do you have any advice for young comics, performers, producers? Uh, and I feel like, and you guys have seen, I mean, I feel like every city has a festival now, many of which are called their city's respective sketch fest. Um, to these young uh festival producers do you like seeing all these festivals sprout up yeah it's great yeah. it's awesome and what, what what kind of knowledge would you impart what were the, the biggest learning lessons in in the history of this festival you i mean i think we've done well because we have both performer and business brains mm -hmm. so i would say think about the experience for your performers and then think about the experience for your audiences and make it easy on everybody mm -hmm. you know try to keep it as organized as you can um, be patient. Maybe yep. try not to bite off more than you can chew. You're probably going to do it anyway, but allow yourself, you know, time to not have to learn every lesson in one year. Cause if you do that, you probably will not do it again because it will be too hard. And if from a producing standpoint, if you're getting into it for the money, don't Yeah, because no, it takes, a, I mean, it takes a long yeah. time before anything can be profitable yeah. really. So you, be prepared if you are starting something like that to break even or lose money your first couple of years. It's just the re economic reality of it. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks for joining me, guys. Thank you. Do you very have much. Um, like uh, Twitter is really big right now? Uh, Instagram, <laughs> uh, like the name things, so that people yeah. can look for you on them. Yeah, you can find me on GeoCities. Uh -oh. at, uh, no, uh, I'm at Cole Stratton on Twitter. At Cole Stratton. I'm at Janet Varney on Twitter, and I'm at the JV Club on Instagram, which is the name of my podcast. I'm the flip on Instagram. I'm at Stratton Cole on Instagram. Thus, no Whoa. one follows me. Mindfuck. Yep. <laughs> well, this has been a pleasure. Uh, we're going to cut to a little thing called an outro segment that I will be recording later with sound effects. So if you guys will take us out with a few more of those. Oh, sure. Seg uh, it's segue me, effects. the gatekeeper. I'm going to lock you out now because you was in before, but now you're outside. Gate, gate's got to open to get let out. Hmm. Well, this has been so much fun. Uh, just a quick <laughs> reminder of the gatekeeper rules for success. Work on your craft endlessly. Be a professional, be undeniable and be cool as fuck always. For more episodes of Gatekeeper, you can subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find me online at jamieflam.com and at jamieflam on Twitter. A very special thanks to the Sideshow Network, The Hollywood Improv, Andrew Stevens, Sean Merrick, Roddy Swearingen, and producer Buddy Peace for the awesome music at the top and end of this episode. And be sure to check out hollywood.improv.com for updates on great new shows coming up in the main room and the lab.